Welcome to Ms. Interpreted, her podcast of public relations and strategic communications, demystified by Kelly Fletcher and Fletcher Marketing PR. So employers have to be proactive and they've got to be thinking ahead and you hate to be the, the bearer of bad news, but what that means in a real life sense is what if we have to lay people off? Well, don't be calling, you know, don't be deciding that the day before you do it. You need to be looking ahead and, all right, if we're going to have to lay people off, who would it be? How would we go about it? Or, or on maybe a, a somewhat happier note, are we going to need an SBA loan in order to stay in business? Okay, what's the process we have to go through to apply for that loan? Be proactive, be smart. Be safe, which we're all doing right now and practicing social distancing. And if you're like me, washing your hands to the point that they stay raw and red and you're using yeah, hand, yeah. hand lotion for the first time in your life in my yeah. day. <laughs> and act in good faith. Welcome, listeners, to the Misinterpreted Podcast. I'm Kelly Fletcher, CEO of Fletcher Marketing PR. And as we're heading into month two of COVID-19's significant U.S. landfall, I'm here with my colleague, Fletcher Senior Strategist Mary Beth West, to break down the latest, this time from the employee perspective. Hey, Kelly, good to, good to see you today. And I think we're going to have a really good and interesting conversation, very relevant to what's going on. Absolutely. Our topic today is COVID-19 and the employee impact. Without question, COVID-19 has already proven devastating to employee populations among corporations, nonprofits, government agencies, and certainly in the PR profession among public relations firms. Yeah. And there's not just the emotional pain and operational disruptions of losing staff to layoffs, furloughs, etc., amid all the economic disruption that's going on, but there are other serious employee issues and the compliance matters too that have to be considered right now. And there are a lot of unknowns. So we're fortunate yeah. to have Chat Hatmaker with us today. He's from the law office Wolf McLean, Bright, Allen and Carpenter, PLLLC. Chad is a longtime colleague and Mary Beth, you and Chad have collaborated on a few projects, yeah, right? We have. Yes. Chad and I worked on some crisis preparedness strategies and advice for both the, the legal and the public relations profession some years ago, helping share some best practices about how legal and PR can work together effectively. And if there was ever a time that we need that to happen, it's now. Yeah. So, Mary Beth, tell us a little bit more about Chad's background. Yeah, sure thing. Chad is a member of Wolf McLean, as you mentioned, here in Knoxville, Tennessee. He's an incredibly skilled attorney with a focus on employment law, among other areas, too. You can follow his blog at tnemploymentlawblog.com. He is a University of Tennessee alumnus, Phi Beta Kappa. He is in the labor and employment sections of the Tennessee Bar Association and the American Bar Association. In 2015, Chad was also selected as a fellow of the Knoxville Bar Foundation. And Chad has advised clients through a lot of diverse challenges. And what I like so much about his approach is that as an attorney, he sees both sides of the coin. So yes, his focus is in this area of the court of law, but he also realizes that there is a court of public opinion out there. And when it comes to safeguarding a client's interests, 
you have to balance things and integrate sources of counsel on that front. And that approach is not necessarily commonplace. It seems like PR, it doesn't just seem like PR and legal often have an adversarial relationship. I know in my last private sector job, the chief legal counsel, I used to just call him Dr. No. So, (laughs) (laughs) okay, I would just go into Dr. No's office and have every idea shot down. Right, right. But anyway, we're we're not giving you a hard time, Chad, but I know we'll talk about (laughs) some of that today as well. So welcome, Chad, to misinterpreted. Thank you, and and thank you for that very, very nice and flattering introduction and for agreeing not to automatically dub me as Dr. No (laughs) 2.0. Okay. Hey, you got like 30 minutes to prove otherwise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you earn some other moniker, you know, we'll we'll slap you with it, but I'm I'm sure, you know, it it will not be necessary. (laughs) But we really want to know, Chad, I mean, we're asking this of everyone nowadays, you know, how are you doing? How is everyone faring in your household and at your work? Work. Great question, and it is. It, someone was telling me the other day. Now, asking someone how you're doing has taken on a whole different meaning. It, yeah. it, it used to just be a, a passing comment, and now it's a comment that has true meaning when it's asked. Or certainly, if there's not true meaning when it's asked, the answer may have true meaning. So, I appreciate you asking me that. And and we're doing fine. The house is doing well. We are. We are adjusting to having two adult children back under the roof. My wife and I went empty nesters about a year ago, and that came to a screeching halt when the University of Tennessee closed down in in person classes. And so we moved a 22 year old and a 19 year old home with us. So everyone <laughs> <I> can relate. <laughs> yes, everyone's having some adjustments associated with that, but it's actually going very smoothly. And work is going well. We here at Wolf McLean, we went early this week, actually before the the mayor's order, county mayor's order. We went what we call staggered shifts work remotely, which essentially means we have the bulk of our group working remotely and we have some persons in the office because, as you all know, not so many things can be done through telework or working remotely, Mm -hmm. but some things can't. You have to open the mail. You have to hopefully find checks in the mail to take to the bank or <laughs> oh, that. you know, those, that's those why things. I go downtown every day right <laughs> you, you have to pay bills so we, we we're we're doing that approach and we'll rotate the persons who are in the office this week will of course rotate out but things are overall going well as can be expected in these uncharted waters in which we are surfing right now Yeah. Well, Chad, let's start with the brass tacks here of how COVID-19 is unfolding for employers and employees. I mean, this is your sphere of expertise in such a great degree in terms of what some of the, not only the legal impacts are, but what some of the follow-on impacts are. And, And part of what we want to try to do today is to let employers know, and certainly the clients that we would be working with or hope to be working with, you give them a sense for what's coming down the pike so they can start to prepare, integrate that with some of their crisis planning, et cetera. And as an asterisk for our listeners too, we will have a slight delay on when this podcast airs versus when we record it. And the challenge is that the situation keeps changing by the hour, it seems. So, and in fact, we've been talking about the $2 trillion aid package that this very moment we're hoping it's going to pass or it's on the it's on the verge of passing but you know we're still kind of in a holding pattern with that but presuming that it does pass what should employers and employees know about it I know that 
this is all new to all of us, and I'm, I'm, I'm not sure how much time you've even had to really deep dive into it, but we'd love to let our listeners know what they need to be thinking about and prepared for relative to that. A- absolutely, and we've, we've, I've had to take a very deep dive into part of it. So part of it that already has passed and that actually will take effect on April 1st is the Families First Coronavirus Response Act. And what that does, and there's a there's a lot of detail on this uh, on my blog, which you referenced earlier, and yeah. there's a good, easy summary to follow that was posted, I think, about a week and a half ago, which now feels like a month ago because so much so much has happened as you alluded to. But in a, in a nutshell, the FFCRA does two things. It it applies to employers who have less than 500 employees, which is a little bit unusual because typically the bigger employers are the ones that are covered. But this one is those who have less than 500 employees. And in certain limited circumstances, it allows employees of those employers to take expanded FMLA, basically it is FMLA for caregiver needs because the employee has a minor, so under 18, daughter or son whose school or place of child care has closed as a result of COVID-19. So the employee in that situation, uh, the requirements are very different from the traditional FMLA, which I won't get into, but here the employee just has to have been employed for at least 30 days. And if they've been employed for at least 30 days and their child's school or daycare is closed due to COVID-19, and and by that I mean not that there was an outbreak, but that the local government like we have in Knox County and most of Tennessee counties have closed schools, the employee comes forward and says, I've got a minor child at home. I, I need to be off of work to care for them. All right. In those circumstances, the employee can get up to 12 weeks of expanded FMLA. The first two weeks are unpaid. The remaining 10 weeks are paid. The employee can get paid at two-thirds rate of his or her regular pay. So just for easy math, you know, if they make $1,000 a week, then they can get six sixty-six sixty-six. For the remainder of that 10 weeks, there is a cap. The employee cannot make more than $200 a day or more than $10,000 for that 10-week period for the expanded FMLA. So that's the one big area that the law addresses. The other area that the law addresses is it provides for And again, that's limited to what I refer to as the caregiver reason, meaning the employee has to be at home to care for the minor child because the school or child care center has closed due to a COVID-19 related reason. The other thing the FFCRA does is it provides for emergency paid sick leave in limited circumstances. Here, there is no 30-day employment requirement. It applies right out of the box once the law takes effect on April the 1st, and it allows for employees to take leave in really six circumstances. And just to summarize those, I mean, the first three essentially are the employee is the subject of a quarantine or isolation order 
because suspected to be sick or actually sick with COVID-19 coronavirus, or the employee has experienced symptoms and is seeking a medical diagnosis from a healthcare provider, or the employee has been advised by a healthcare provider to self-quarantine. So three reasons which I generically say, okay, those are the sick leave part of the emergency paid sick leave. There are three other reasons which are similar to the FMLA. They're the caregiver leave sections, and those allow for paid leave if the employee is caring for an individual who is subject to a quarantine order or if the employee is caring for the son or daughter, if the school or child care has closed, so sort of a repeater, as we saw in the emergency or the expanded FMLA. And then finally, there's a catch-all provision. Here, there is a difference, though, in that it is limited to 80 hours. So it's not 10 weeks. or It's 80 hours, still two-thirds rate of pay, if the employee is off of work for the caregiver reasons, if the employee is off of work because of what I'm calling a sick leave reason, so the first three reasons that I, out, that I outlined, employees told by a doctor to stay home or employee is exhibiting symptoms and seeking medical diagnosis or employee is under a quarantine order, they can get their full pay, but there is a cap. It's capped at $511 a day or $5,110 for that two-week period. If the employee is under the caregiver reason, it is similar. It's the same amount, rather, as the FMLA. So it's two-thirds regular rate of pay, not to exceed $200 a day, $2,000 for that two-week period. So I know I've said a mouthful there. There's a mouthful in that law, but that's that's what it does, and that's what I've spent a lot of my last – the law actually was signed by President Trump late on the evening of March the 18th. doesn't take effect until April the 1st, but I can tell you that every day since then I have spent a significant amount of time advising employers on it because people want to be proactive. They want to do the right thing. They want to comply, and certainly – they're now getting questions from employees about how it may impact them. So a very significant change. And I have a couple of follow-up questions to everything you just went over, just as if I can interject that. So number one, not uncomplicated, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I mean, you know, make, making sure that if, as an employer, if you're going to follow the law, you better be on your P's and Q's here with it and or if you can engage some form of legal counsel or other type of, types of financial counsel who've really reviewed this very carefully to advise you to be sure you're in compliance, I would think would be fairly important. Also, everything that you just went through, is this employers across the board that have to comply with this regardless of how many employees? Recap that for me. Yeah, no, very good question. And, it, and it's unusual, and I'll tie that in. So it's any employer in the any domestic employers in a US company that has well let me clarify I don't want somebody thinking they're based in another country and therefore they don't have to comply it's essentially if you are operating in the US and you have fewer than 500 employees you are covered okay now yeah. there is uh, there are two possible 
exemptions. One of them, and we don't have guidance on this yet, but the Department of Labor did say for employers who have less than 50 employees, if you can show that complying with this law will impact your business's viability going forward, right? You will not be able to continue to operate. (laughs) And everybody raises their hands. (laughs) So that's hard because, you know, as an employer of under 50, of course I would want to comply, but it would be almost impossible. Yeah, what we're talking about here, and that was going to be my next question, is this is employer-funded, not government-funded. So this is like an unfunded mandate, basically, right? Well, sort of of a yes and no to that because... And this is why, and I'll use the term rationale loosely, because I think you can, mm-hmm. we can always debate that at our government officials, you know, who work really hard, we can always second guess. But the, the rationale on making it employers less than 500 employees who have to comply is you can get tax credits for making these payments. So it is employer funded initially. The employer has the potential to receive tax credits to effectively get reimbursement. But of course, there are some hoops that have to, and they're not many, but there are some steps that have to be taken. I'm not an accountant or a tax lawyer, but obviously those issues come in that might impact the recovery. But for sure, you don't get it instantly. So to your point, Mary Beth, I've got to pay it right now. I may get it back in the form of a tax credit, I may not, and that won't be immediate. Yeah. That'll be sometime later. So it is coming out of the employer's pocketbook right out of the gate. I think that's going to cause a lot of businesses with under 50 people to go under or just mm-hmm. say, I'm done or I'm shutting my doors. Yeah. Or worse yet, just lay everybody off. Yeah. And because if you lay somebody off now, they can get unemployment plus the $600 per week bump, right? Yep. Yeah. It's, exactly. like, it's like the, it's the law of unintended consequences, I guess. I think that's well said by by both of you, and and it is we are going to see that. That's just the reality of it, and it's not and a question I get a lot from people who have not had an opportunity to read it yet. Is well, do I have to pay them if I lay them off? And under this law, the answer is no. You know, it's not a severance act. It's not you get this pay if you get laid off. To to your point, if you if you get laid off, you can collect unemployment, and as you noted, there's an a there's a an increase in that now for a limited period of time, but you won't get paid under this law. So so it will have that impact. You will have some employers who essentially just opt out. And right now we don't have any detailed guidance on what you would have to show in order to opt out other than the Department of Labor has said, well, you need to be making records of that. So in some cases it's pretty easy, right? I was getting, I was averaging uh, 15 customers a day prior to this, and now I'm down to two, well, that might be a pretty good reason to show how your business has been impacted. But mm-hmm. but it, it's to the law of unintended consequences, I, I fear that that may very well be the case with some businesses. Yeah, and I think in the public sphere and how it gets played out in the media, it's just viewed as, oh, you know, we now have all this support and it's just, you know, you're just picking money off the money tree in a way. And and I think that a lot of people in the public, they don't understand, you know, the media, they do not communicate these other aspects of it as to what the true ramifications can be to their employer. And, and very often employees, I mean, they do not look at these situations through the employer lens. 
of impact. No, absolutely. I think this is a situation where a lot of people could take advantage of this and they will. And that's unfortunate. I have a question. We're kind of going off. This is so interesting, Chad, to me, because I'm right in the throes of all this. Sure. So what about self-employed people? If you're self-employed and you're advised to self-quarantine because of an underlying health issue or whatever, what happens to those people? That's a great question, right? Because they are their own employer. And so, you know, are they going to to pay them themselves during during that scenario? I mean, that's a essentially this law would not really provide protection for that. Now, it's my understanding, and this of course is not final because of the CARES Act, which Mayor Beth you referenced right at the at the intro, you know, it's not yet law. The Senate has passed it. We're waiting to see what the House does and what certainly I think the president will sign it once it gets signed. It, one takeaway from that is it does allow – it's my understanding anyway that the draft says self-employed persons can collect unemployment, and typically that was not the case. So that actually is potentially, Kelly, a way that that can be addressed. But but you're right, under the FFCRA, that's sort of a hole, right? Because who's, no one's paying you. I mean, if you're self-employed, you're paying yourself. Well, you're not really going to be able to claim FFCRA benefits from any of your clients because you're an independent contractor. So it's not like they pay you. So you're writing yourself a check, basically. Yeah. 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 I can tell you right now that if in my small business, if I had one or two employees take advantage of this, it would be really hard for me to stay in business because I would be having to pay them, but then I would be having to go find somebody else to do the work that they can't do. Right. Yeah, you're you're getting double and even triple whammy. That's not sustainable for yeah. most businesses that I know that are. I mean, you think about how many businesses in East Tennessee are under 500 employees. That's sure. a ton of businesses. Mm-hmm. What's the whole 500 mark have to do with anything? I mean, is that an arbitrary number? I mean, who came up with that bright idea? Yeah, exactly. And and we put bright in quotation marks there, but. My understanding is it was really two things. One, there are at at a certain size when you're 500 or more, it was basically those employers were not going to be able to apply before or receive the tax credit. So I think that was one of the driving forces. I think the other driving force, and and let me stress, well, I think there's probably some of the some of the commentary on this, but I think another driving force was, oh well. The big employers, those with 500 or more, are doing it anyway, and I think that's a misnomer. I mean, there certainly oh, absolutely. are. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, absolutely. Certainly around here. I mean, are there companies? I don't know this for a fact, but if you tell, I'm sure Google provides some sort of sick leave. Uh, Apple probably does, as you all well know. They're in their home bases are in states where those benefits are absolutely needed probably to attract and retain the most talented employees. There are certain large companies like GM and Ford who likely provide sick leave because those are unionized workforces and there's a collective bargaining agreement which requires it. But the majority of your other 500 or more employee employers likely don't have anything or certainly not anything that's as extensive as this. So it is really, I think, a flawed rationale on that part of it. The tax credit issue is 
uh, fortunately beyond my capabilities since I'm not an accountant. But if that was the driving aspect of it, it seems to me it was short-sighted and there should have been maybe some tiers here, right? And certain size employers have to do this and they would be eligible for this amount of tax credit. This size employer would do this and could get this much back. And then this size employer is exempted. But uh, you know, and, and again, we don't want to we don't want to throw too many stones in an effort to quickly address a major problem, a pandemic. We get legislation which is well intended, but as to your point, Mary Beth, earlier, uh, the law of unintended consequences will likely result. Right. Well, and to Kelly's earlier question, I did happen to note, and I tweeted out yesterday that it appears that the two trillion dollar package, that's again. Today is March 27th, and when this podcast airs, we are going to have a few days delay, I'm sure. But because the things can change, they're changing so fast. But that aid package, I think, did have a specific line item for freelancers and for self-employed. So someone who does some, something like we do for a living, if you're freelance, there there was some portion of aid there. And like I said, I did tweet out, I think, something from the Wall Street Journal that had an enumeration of yeah, what those were. Yeah, I think they can apply. So, so that is something, of course, separate to the the law that Chad was just mentioning had been passed a number of days or a couple of weeks ago, right? So right. Um, at any rate, yeah. Well, I think I speak on behalf of pretty much all small business owners that I know, and that a tax credit is not what we need right now. I mean, we we have to stay in business now or there's going to be no need for a, tra- yeah. a tax yeah. credit. Yeah. So that just seems like so short-sighted. And it right. seems like a bunch of people who don't own businesses or run small businesses made it up. And I'll get off my high horse now, Mary well, Beth, you can ask yeah. your next question. No, it's okay. It's just like, uh, what, what are the politically salient talking points that will make political people look good as opposed to the rationale of what makes good sense. But at any rate. Well said. So do you think, Chad, that COVID-19 is going to unleash a tremendous amount of new regulatory or compliance requirements on employers? I do. Certainly, we've already seen it with FFCRA. We're going to see some semblance of it in the CARES Act. I suspect, but that we will not at least initially see any employer requirements in the state of Tennessee. Tennessee generally is a is not a particularly overactive uh, legislation group, so I suspect it'll just be whatever the federal government imposes on employers. And it and it may be that well, hopefully we won't see any more for a multitude of reasons. The biggest of which would be we will all get through this pandemic and it'll we'll move past it and won't need additional things. But certainly we've already seen it in the law that we have with the FFCRA. We'll see a little bit more of it with the CARES Act. And then I'm hopeful we'll see at, at minimum a, a slowdown, if not a complete stoppage of new laws that employers have to comply with. Yeah. How well, Chad, do you think different government agencies are doing on communicating to employers during this crisis. It seems like everyone is playing a guessing game right now because, I mean, it is impossible to somehow divine 
how the pandemic will fully play out in the U.S., but it makes the task of trying to plan or forecast ahead next to impossible, right? So I'm just curious what your take is on, I mean, how well do government agencies ever communicate to employers, right? <laughs> right. And, and the general, so I would, I would say two things. I would say the general response to your question of how well do they typically communicate is not very well would be generally. <laughs> That's uh, the generally short answer. That's the short answer. How, however, I will say that in this, these pandemic conditions, that they've done a good job. So the two biggest ones that you see in the employment law field are are the EEOC, and the EEOC actually issued pandemic guidance. If you go to their website, they've got, I think it's called ADA, Americans with Disabilities Act, pandemic guidance. And that that guidance was on the websites, website of the EEOC at least a month ago. And so they were Good. sort of ahead of the curve. And I referenced it, well, probably for the first time about a month ago when these questions started to just kind of trickle in. And then once the you know, literally here we are nine days ago when President Trump signed FFCRA, the Department of Labor is in charge of enforcing that. So they have been working very hard. And to its credit, the Department of Labor had to publish a notice, which is which employers have to post in their workplace. That's not particularly hard. They had to get that out by Wednesday the 25th. They did that. The same day, They also, the Department of Labor also issued some frequently asked questions regarding the law, you know, Q&A style. Well, and that actually might have gone up on Tuesday, but by last night, so just a day to two days later, they had already updated the FAQs and it expanded from eight pages to 18 pages. So I would say under the circumstances, I'm giving them an A for effort and for communication because that's, that's pretty responsive on a tight little deadline. And if you're updating it within two days, particularly when their folks are obviously teleworking and working remotely, yeah. uh, they've done a good job. They, they are definitely better at this than they are their wage and hour audits, if you've ever had to deal with those <laughs> things. So, it's an improvement. Well, Chad, when employees are placed in a position of having their jobs at risk, it's a certainly a tough and emotional situation. We've never had this kind of circumstance before. In most cases, everything was going along in the economy just fine. Then all of a sudden, the tsunami of an economic impact hit and just leveled everything. A normal emotion is just want to, you know, we want to blame someone and there's certainly plenty of finger pointing going on at Washington or two in Washington. Do you think employee lawsuits against employers or other legal risks are going to occur from this disaster? And are you hearing any rumblings among your legal community about what employers should expect? Certainly, I think there will be many lawsuits coming out of this. There'll be lawsuits claiming that the FFCRA was not complied with, or there may be lawsuits saying, I tried to exercise my rights under the FFCRA and you terminated me and therefore it's retaliation. Those are are two you know, obvious examples of claims that could come out. Another one that we might see is employees who and again, and we all we all hope no no one gets COVID nineteen, no one gets coronavirus, but it's it's inevitable that you're gonna see some lawsuits from from employees who claim that they were exposed to COVID nineteen at work. And of course workers' compensation 
it generally will be the exclusive remedy for that, but you may see some lawsuits which claim that the employer was grossly negligent and therefore the employee is not limited to workers' compensation. They can potentially recover more. So those are the, the types of things, Kelly, that we are that I expect we will see, and those are the, the things that within the legal community, those are the types of suits that we're all sort of pointing to as, okay, we know these are going to come at some point. The question is going to be what, if anything else, comes with those. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in Tennessee being a right-to-work state, does that mitigate some of the risk for some Tennessee-based employers? You know, the fact that being a right-to-work state, an employer can fire someone for cause or really for no reason, right? Right. So, yeah. So, Tennessee is, a, is an employment at will state, which means that you can terminate the employee for good reason, bad reason, or no reason at all. So, the general rule does apply. However, the exceptions to that rule are you can't terminate someone if it violates another law that imposes some requirements. So, what I think you will... Certainly, the uh, the FFCRA has an anti-retaliation provision in it, and that would be one way someone could claim, oh, I tried to exercise my rights and you fired me in retaliation, or someone could claim I was home subject to a self-isolation order and you owed me my 80 hours, you didn't pay it. I mean, those are, are two types of lawsuits we could see just from sure. that law. Yeah, right. and, and and that does make sense, and, and that is something that employers should bear in mind. You know, Pew Research just came out with a new poll where they reported some interesting stats on teleworkers, and we were talking about that just a minute ago. So those who work from home, at present, it seems everyone is working from home. Uh, we've been working from home. I know that you have been as well. Kelly and I have been having some discussions, maybe placing a few bets on whether this forced experiment here in our society and these work from home arrangements, whether that's actually going to totally shift workspaces and workplaces as we previously knew them. So the Pew Research stated, and let me read this here, I'll give you its quote, Before the coronavirus, telework was an optional benefit, mostly for the affluent few. Generally speaking, the larger segment of employees who have telework as an option are so-called knowledge workers and people who do most of their work on computers. Around a quarter or 24% of workers in management, business, and financial occupations have access to telework or have, have had access up to this point. And so do 14% of professional and related workers, such as lawyers, software designers, scientists, end quote. So do you think these numbers, Chad, of teleworkers are going to go wildly up even after things level out and normalize a bit from this crisis? And, and, and what are going to be the, you know, the potential employment law considerations of that situation, if any? I, I do think the numbers will increase and in the the big potential employment law consideration is whether working at home or teleworking will be a reasonable accommodation under the Americans with Disabilities Act. And, and just, ah. just, yeah, and so just briefly uh, for, for the listeners, the, the ADA, of course, prohibits discrimination against disabled employees, and it requires the employer to reasonably accommodate the employee's disability to allow him or her to perform the essential functions of the job if a reasonable accommodation can be provided without creating an undue hardship. So what you there's a lot of tension in the law on whether working at home 
or from home, working remotely is a reasonable accommodation. Certainly in some positions it's not, but in others it can be. What you're going to see, I believe, is in the past where an employer would have said, I can't have you work from home. It's an essential function that you have to be at work, and that argument might very well have carried the day. Well, if you've had that person working at home for two weeks, a month, or whatever time period it is during this pandemic, and then later you have someone who says who's in a similar position that has, says they have to work at home for a reasonable accommodation, it's going to be really hard for the employer to argue, hey, that won't work because they've just done it and done it successfully. set a precedent. Right. Now, if during that time what happened was, yeah, they worked at home, but it was it was a disaster. You know, we couldn't get much. We had bad connections, mm-hmm. that type of thing. Then I think the mm-hmm. employer will be able to say it was an undue hardship. We did it then. We didn't have a choice, but we can't do it again because it really didn't work. So this will create – that's a, it's a great question on employment law implications – this will create a whole new body of law under the ADA on whether teleworking is indeed a reasonable accommodation, and it will be proven to be in some cases and in some not. I mean, the implications here of what this is unleashing is unbelievably significant. <laughs> and I don't know that employers have really thought about this in terms of thinking three or four steps ahead of what their workplaces may have to look like even a year from now as a result of all of this. Well, Mary Beth and I have talked a lot about in our world, we're seeing more agencies go virtual, particularly internationally. They seem to be ahead of us. But um, we do have virtual agencies here in the U.S., and we think there's going to be more of a trend towards that specifically to enhance our talent pools. Right. And so I think it sounds like there's going to be a whole new body of law that needs to be created around virtual businesses where you are still a W-2 employee. Yeah. Because that's a whole different thing. It's always been muddied waters in that, you know, very much so. And uh, there's been all kinds of risk on both sides about that and just lack of clarity, I think. But yeah, in the public relations profession... We are extremely well-suited to be successful on a telework platform, really. And I I just think that this whole scenario that globally we're dealing with, it's going to sort of separate the wheat from the chaff for a lot of industries as to whether this is workable or not, or whether this is maybe a real opportunity, looking at it glass half full, of how their workplace can evolve in a positive way so that everybody's working in a much more productive manner. So it can be positive. So we have several clients who have pivoted completely to telemedicine, so that's another area. Anyway, Chad, I think this all equals a lot of job security for you. (laughs) (laughs) Congratulations. Yeah. (laughs) Well, certainly it it is off to a hot start, no question about that. (laughs) Chad, let's talk a bit about the dynamics of crisis management in general. Crises spawn legal risks just as much as they produce PR nightmares. And it would seem that both sides of that council, the legal and the PR sides, would have to work closely together and seamlessly. But how often does that really happen? I, I've been on both sides of that scenario. And, and the short answer is not often enough, right? I mean, right. The, uh, amen. Yeah, I mean, certainly with with the two of you, and I've had the opportunity to make best reference. She and I have worked. We actually co-wrote an article on this topic several years ago. That well, probably three or four years ago now. That ran in the the Knoxville 
the Knoxville Bar Journal, and then we have worked together and consulted on some matters where you have clients that have, oh, my, we do, in fact, have a crisis. And it is just absolutely crucial that the two sides are working together, you know, and, and again, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir, but you all both know and your audience knows, we long, long ago passed the day where someone could say no comment, and that was an appropriate response. <laughs> yeah. That, thank you for yeah. being, yeah, thank you for saying that message from the legal side of of the coin. It's really an important message. It is important. It's absolutely true. It is rarely, if ever, is that going to be appropriate, particularly if you've got a crisis. Now, at the same time, and and you all know this too, as as does your audience, it doesn't need to be, well, let me just rush a statement out there. It has to be prompt, but it has to be well thought out. It has to be written with the guidance of someone who is handling the PR. It has to be with the lawyer's input because you don't want, okay, well, the PR team said we should say this. I'm like, well, that's great, except no one checked with me and this is a problem now from the law side. Or, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. then the converse of that, the lawyer says, well, you should just say, uh, we're aware of this. Okay, well, yeah, but what's our message? How are we getting out there that we are, I mean, you all know this as well. You could say, you could say we are aware of this, or you could say this is certainly an uh, an event that is tragic. We are looking into the circumstances of it and investigating it fully, and and will have a full response once we've had an opportunity to complete that investigation. That says a lot more and hasn't really said much, right? But it gets the message out. So. Right, right, and I think I remember the with the article. And by by the way, I will tweet out the article. I remember it yeah, was uh, not exactly digitally friendly, but I can post uh, some of the PDFs of the of the page because I do think it was on point and very yeah. evergreen in terms of the wisdom behind this idea of being able to communicate responsiveness and two a lot of messaging in the public relations arena, if you're just demonstrating care for your stakeholders, that does not require that you're putting forward legally risky commentary. Right. You can very much demonstrate care and responsiveness to your stakeholder groups in a way that maintains your reputational posture and your relationships with your stakeholders in a positive way. And it's it's not this either or mentality. But to your point, we do have to be working in stronger collaboration, the public relations side and the legal side. And we have to be equal partners at the management table and in consultation with CEOs and the larger C-suite. Because when it comes to crisis management, we can't be operating in silos. We have to be coordinating a response where left hand, right hand, everybody knows what the other is doing. And and it's a team-based approach. And I think that things really start breaking down when you have literally a rift going on within the management structure. And and that rift so very often happens with PR saying one thing or advising one thing and then legal advising something else. So, I mean, Chad, your message is so on point. Well, and it's it's and 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 you all preach the same message, but it's it's the right message, right? It's always yeah, it's always yeah. easy to say you're right, but that is the correct message, no question. <laughs> well, it's in service, yeah. It, yeah. I mean, if we're really working in service to the organization and hopefully advising them to work in service to their customers, their employees, yeah. the public, in a, in a responsible way, then you know that's the proverbial win-win-win. 
as the COVID-19 situation continues down this current path, we all know that there are daunting days ahead without question. Many Americans are living the worst of it right this second. I mean, here in Tennessee, we're, we're starting to see you know, very much of the ratcheting up, but there are other markets that uh, certainly New York, I, I was watching about New Orleans just this morning. It's it's a very difficult in the moment situation right now. Companies are going to have to make continued decisions in the moment as all of these factors shift and change. So as someone who is not just an attorney, Chad, but I, I mean, I view you and the work you specifically do, you're a strategic counselor on so many levels for your clients. What's your advice for companies as they continue to navigate this era that we're in? I mean, how are you going to try to continue serving in that strategic role as, as all of this unfolds? And and to your point, it, it's it's moving very, very rapidly. But what clients have to do is they have to be proactive. A, a friend of mine says, and, it, and it's a great line, he says, don't let your failure to plan be my crisis. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's absolutely true. So, the, so employers have to be proactive and they've got to be thinking ahead. And you hate to be the, the bearer of bad news, but what that means in a real life sense is what if we have to lay people off? Well, don't be calling, you know, don't be deciding that the day before you do it. You need to be looking ahead and, all right, if we're going to have to lay people off, who would it be? How would we go about it? Or or on maybe a, a somewhat happier note, are we going to need an SBA loan in order to stay in business? Okay, what's the process we have to go through to apply for that loan? Be proactive. Be smart. Be safe, which we're all doing right now and practicing social distancing. And if you're like me, washing your hands to the point that they stay raw and red and you're using yeah. hand, <laughs> hand lotion for the first time in your life, in my case. Yeah. <laughs> and act in good faith. Uh, and on that note, the Department of Labor has said with respect to the FFCRA that they're going to give employers essentially a 30-day grace period. And provided employers are acting in good faith, then they're not going to hit them with monetary penalties for failure to comply with the FFCRA if they're acting in good faith. And and certainly, I know my clients and I know the clients that you all advise and work for, they want to do the right thing. They want to act in good faith. And so the last point of this is, is something that they're already doing anyway, but but be be acting in a manner that is a good faith manner, and and that's what we have to do in this time of crisis. I couldn't agree more. We need to treat others as we would want to be treated, and a little empathy goes a long way. Thank you so much, Chad, for being here. You didn't have to take your time out of your busy day to offer up all this complimentary information. I mean, this is a wealth of it information. We, we love hearing from other disciplines, and the legal perspective is much needed right now, especially as close as legal and PR work together. I think our listeners are going to gain so much from this. So listeners, you can connect with Chad on LinkedIn and follow his Twitter handle at jchadhatmaker. Please follow us at Twitter handle at FletcherPR. You can also follow me on Twitter at KD Fletcher and Mary Beth at Mary Beth West. We will respond to your questions and your comments, listeners. So please post them using the hashtag misinterpreted. And that's hashtag MS interpreted. And for visibility's sake, don't forget to capitalize the PR. And don't miss our Twitter chats on the last Wednesday of each month using the same misinterpreted hashtag. We love having direct dialogue with all of you. Everyone, thanks for joining us. Stay safe and healthy. Until next time. 
Thanks for joining us on Ms. Interpreted, Public Relations Demystified. You can keep up with the latest on the podcast at FletcherMarketingPR.com and on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll see you next time 